It's Wednesday, February 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Drug companies Pfizer and Moderna have pledged to boost the doses of vaccines delivered after solving some manufacturing issues they had. While they are stepping up production, many ask, why can't we make more doses faster? Much of that answer lies in the very specialized process and raw materials that go into making them. Isaac Arnsdorf, reporter at ProPublica, joins us for more. Next, security officials that were in charge during the assault on the Capitol on January 6th were testifying before Congress and offered their account of how things went south. There were concerns of optics and a mess of conflicting orders that led to hours-long delays in mobilizing the National Guard. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, joins us for more on the Capitol Hill security failures. Finally, a case in which an organ transplant patient has died after receiving lungs infected with COVID. Initial tests on the donor and lungs came back negative, but after the transplant, the patient fell ill with fever and showed signs of lung infection. Her condition deteriorated and then tests came back positive. She died 61 days after the transplant. Jonelle Alicia, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, joins us for this rare and tragic story. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. 702,000 doses were impacted specifically, primarily Moderna doses. Pfizer is a little bit delayed. Moderna's, we're going to be behind a little bit more. Joining us now is Isaac Arnsdorf, reporter at ProPublica. Thanks for joining us, Isaac. Thanks for having me. We're getting uh, some more good news on the vaccine front. The rollout has been very slow to start. We got some more pledges from Pfizer and Moderna to boost up their supply of doses sent out to the United States. We're also seeing some other vaccine and rival drug makers team up to help production. So this is all very good news that we're seeing, but there's a lot of questions. You know, why can't we just make the vaccines that much faster? Why can't we use the Defense Production Act to force companies to help in all the production? The short answer is that it just, it's tough and it just takes time and things don't happen in an instant. So Isaac, tell us a little bit more about the difficulties in producing mass quantities of these vaccines. I mean, there are a couple of important things to remember that were helpful to me in learning when I was reporting on this. One is that we heard a lot last year about this idea of quote unquote at risk manufacturing, which you know didn't mean anything about risk just in terms of financial risk, right? And that meant that the companies were going to start making these vaccines even before they finished the trials to know that they were safe and effective and that that was going to give them a head start. But what I learned is that that didn't mean that they could kind of just like flip a switch and start cranking them out because actually what that gave them a head start on was basically inventing the manufacturing process. There had never been an mRNA vaccine before, which is the type of vaccine that Moderna and Pfizer have created. And so in addition to needing to invent this vaccine, they needed to invent this whole supply chain to manufacture them by the millions. And that had just never been done before. And so they were going from ingredients that had basically been sold by the kilogram, and now they were trying to buy them up by the metric ton. So that's a 1,000-fold increase. And the other thing that I found helpful to think about this was is that dealing with vaccines, their biologics, some of these ingredients are living things. So it's almost more like agriculture. It's more like growing plants than it is like just stamping out shoes or iPhones or whatever. And that makes it certainly science, but there's also a little bit of art to it and kind of 
learning the process of how to get the best results. And sometimes if there's a little bit of contamination, it can spoil a whole batch. So that's why even as they're expanding the production, it's not totally smooth and there's continues to be some uncertainty about the amount of vaccine that's coming out from week to week. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that very specialized supply chain and what goes on in there. You know, these vaccines right now, they encase the mRNA in little fat globules. That's how it's delivered into your body and so it can go into the cells. So everything from that process is very specialized and there's so many different aspects to all of this that makes it very, very complicated. So like you mentioned, for them to ramp it up, out of nothing and they had to create this process. So can tell me a little bit more about this supply chain? The bottom line is there are just not that many companies out there that can do this. And there are not that many facilities and there are not that many pieces of equipment and there are not that many companies that make the equipment. So every link in that chain is sort of a, a limiting factor and it all has to move together or else you get bottlenecks. And if you and if you free up one bottleneck, then it just creates a bottleneck somewhere else. That's why it's the whole chain that has to move in this you know, very carefully calibrated, coordinated way. So the fat bubbles that you mentioned, which are kind of the delivery vehicle for the RNA, these come ultimately from petroleum or from plant oils, and then they have to get injected with the mRNA strand. And all of these ingredients, this is another really important critical piece, is all of these ingredients have to be the highest quality, the highest sterility, because these are products that are going to be ultimately, you know, injected in, into human arms. And so while there might be, you know, other suppliers that are fine for animal products or consumer products, for a medical product like this, they have to be absolutely sure that they're getting the highest quality for safety reasons. Aside from the supply chains, then, you know, I mentioned the Defense Production Act, you know, why can't we just pop up a brand new facility to help make all this stuff? So this was a question that we posed to Dr. Fauci, and I mean, he had an interesting answer, which was sort of like, well, you could. And there actually, there are cases where the Army Corps of Engineers is helping to supervise construction to expand capacity at some of these facilities. But, you know, with this idea of basically building a new factory, by the time that you got it up and running and did all the inspections and, you know, made sure that it was safe and everything was up to the specifications, it would take about three to four months. And the reality is in three to four months at the current trajectory, there's going to be enough doses for all eligible American adults. So it doesn't gain you anything by doing that. And that's not really what the Defense Production Act can help us with. What it can help us with is when those bottlenecks pop up, you can kind of do a little surge there and, and alleviate that problem. And the way it works basically is it just is the government telling the suppliers that they have to fulfill the order before they supply anyone else. So it's kind of like a prioritization. And that's how the Defense Production Act is useful. But it's not a panacea. The way that Dr. Fauci put it is, you know, it facilitates what you're trying to do, but it doesn't create something out of nothing. Isaac Arnsdorf, reporter at ProPublica, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. These resources were barely enough to counter an event that had never happened in the history of the United States. A mob of thousands of American citizens launching a violent assault 
on the U.S. Capitol. Joining us now is Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Anita. Sure. Thanks for having me back. On Tuesday, we were hearing testimony to uh, two Senate committees. We're hearing from former Capitol Police Chief Steve Sund and a few others about what was happening at the Capitol on January 6th when the Capitol was attacked by a mob. We're hearing just kind of a bunch of conflicting stories, stories about unanswered calls, hours-long delays in getting the National Guard approved to go out there. It really does seem like more of a mess than it initially seemed, if that was even possible. So, Anita, what are we hearing in testimony? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, even the people that were there on Tuesday were disagreeing with each other. And that's why you're seeing members of Congress say, "Okay, we've got to hear from some other people (laughs) coming up. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's sort of two things that I would say that they heard about at this hearing. One is they were saying that the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, was slow to send the National Guard to help them out. So we're going to hear senators who now want to hear from the Pentagon about what happened. So that's the number one thing they sort of agree on. And the second is that they were not aware of the intelligence that had been gathered to show that there would be some kind of strike on the Capitol. So what they're saying is that they knew there would be protests and that there could be problems in the city, but they're saying that they didn't have the information to know that people planned to come to the Capitol. Let's continue on there for a little bit, because it's just hard to believe that there wasn't such a heightened assessment of what was going on there. I mean, we were seeing media reports for a couple of weeks before that, highlighting a lot of these extremist groups that might be potentially there. We're just hearing so much about it. And it's just hard to believe that they were not going to be prepared for something. I guess you mentioned it. Maybe they thought it was going to happen other places and not the Capitol. But just to not be ready for that is pretty striking. And and I guess there was uh, something made about an FBI report that was sent the day before. It just didn't make it all the way up to Stephen Sun. So remember, of the four people that testified, three of them were dealt with, and I say in the past because they've all since left, only with the Capitol. So one was with the District of Columbia, but the other three just deal with the Capitol building. And so what they're saying is, well, look, we had heard, of course, that there were things going to happen in the city, but not to the Capitol itself. You mentioned a report. There was an FBI report or a report from an FBI field office in Norfolk, Virginia, saying that there was some kind of social media thread that was warning that there was going to be some kind of problem, looming war, um, they called it, at the Capitol building. But what we heard from them at the testimony is that it never came up to the level that the Capitol Police Chief and the Sergeant at Arms of the House and Senate knew that that was going to happen or that that was a threat. So it did go to lower level places, but it did not reach the level of the top people so that they would know that. And then a little more on the delays in getting the National Guard there. Stephen Sund, as I mentioned, he's the former uh, Capitol Police chief there. He said that he made a call to one of the sergeant-at-arms from either the House or the Senate. I forget who exactly. I'm sorry. But he made a call to them saying, hey, you know, we need the National Guard out here. He said he made the call at 1.09 p.m. They said they, they never got a formal request until after 2 p.m. You know, so there's a big discrepancy into when this plea to get the National Guard came in. Yeah, that was really confusing. And you heard some senators saying, well, look, can you check your phone records? Obviously, our phones now tell us the exact time we made a call or receive a call. So that was confusing. But I think there was somewhat of a consensus that officials did call the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, and ask for the National Guard, for the National Guard to be deployed, and that they had heard that 
for optics, for reasons of optics, because right. they weren't sure if they should send armed troops to the front of the Capitol. They were afraid of that, how that was going to look. That's why you saw senators say, we need to get some people from the Department of Defense here to see if they really said that or how much of the delay. Basically, what we heard in the testimony Tuesday was that there was a couple hours of delay. And so what these officials were telling the Department of Defense is, look, our police can't handle it. They're already under attack. We can't fight these people off. We do need someone and we don't need to worry about optics. So there's going to be a disconnect there because I'm sure the Pentagon will come and say there was no delay. This has been a source of a conflict since the very beginning. You saw President Trump, Vice President Pence, all talking about the National Guard and who was responsible for sending them and why there was delay. So I think there's going to continue to be that problem. And so what's next on all of this? I know we're going to hear more testimony. Senator Roy Blunt is questioning, you know, if the current structure of the way they operate their works either on a daily basis or in emergency situations. Stephen Sun just paints this picture of them not being ready for this at all. He said no civilian force has ever trained or is prepared to handle a big insurrectionist mob like this. So where do we go from here? What kind of reforms are they going to try to work for? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's been six weeks since this, and it's sort of remarkable that this is a first major hearing going into this. So the Congress is just beginning to look at this. You're going to see a variety of other hearings coming forward. I mentioned that they want to hear from Department of Defense officials. They want to follow up on telephone conversations. You're also going to see later this week that the House Appropriations Committee is going to hear testimony from the acting Capitol Police chief. So obviously the Capitol Police chief, who was the chief at the time, has left. This is going to be the person that has temporarily replaced him to talk about sort of going forward. I think we're going to see some other hearings as well. We'll probably hear about the damage to the building and how much that costs taxpayers and what they need to do to fix all that up. And I think basically this is the beginning of a series of hearings on this issue. Yeah, I mean, they even want to look into the roles that Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell played in all of this. There's going to be a lot of finger pointing still yet to come to as well through all of it. So we'll have to wait and see how these hearings turn out. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. All the testing that was uh, readily available and recommended was done. That was a nasopharyngeal swab on the donor prior to the recovery of the organs. Those tests were negative. The BAL specimen is literally taken from the lower depths of the lung. Uh, So a tube is inserted into the airway and down into the lung. Joining us now is Jonelle Alicia, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thanks for joining us, Jonelle. Oh, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about a very interesting story, not necessarily something for people to be concerned about if you're in the the market for an organ transplant. This case that we're going to talk about is extremely rare, but we're hearing about a woman in Michigan who contracted COVID-19 and then unfortunately died two months after the transplant, after receiving a double lung transplant from someone who ended up having COVID-19. The initial test came negative, but once they dug a little deeper, that they found that the lungs did have the virus in them. So Janelle, tell us a little bit about what we're hearing in this specific case. It is, as you say, a very rare case. You know, there were 40,000 organ transplants in the U.S. last year, and I've been following this, and this is the only confirmed case of COVID transmitted through a transplant 
for the entire time of the pandemic. So that's important to remember. Yeah, this was a case where a woman was in a car accident, a woman from the upper Midwest, and she suffered a serious brain injury and wound up being a double lung donor. And they did all the tests that you would normally do. They tested the, um, you know, swabs from her nose and throat, and they came back negative. The lung transplant recipient tested negative. They went ahead and did the transplant. And then three days later, the recipient developed symptoms of COVID. And then a day after that, one of the surgeons who handled the donated lungs came down with COVID as well. And, you know, as it happened, you know, the unfortunate part, she got a fever, her blood pressure fell, she was having difficulty breathing, she developed septic shock, everything started to fall apart after that. So doctors decided to test for COVID-19 again, and then the new samples came back positive. The big question was, where did she get it from? So how did they go about retesting and figuring it out? It turns out when you procure lungs from somebody who is a donor, they typically take a kind of a wash of the very lower part of the respiratory tract and they keep some of the liquid from that wash. And so they went back and tested that fluid and that fluid was what tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the surgeon uh, that handled the transplant also got infected they think that he got infected from this whole process as well, just handling the lungs there. But nobody else on the transplant team tested negative for the virus, thankfully. There were 10 other people who were tested and they were all negative. This surgeon handled the lungs when they got them and he participated in the transplant and he got sick, but then he recovered. So uh, before this incident, you know, it wasn't really clear if COVID could be transmitted through an organ transplant such as this. And in this specific case, the only thing that was transplanted were the lungs. So the big question now is, are other organs at risk? Are people at risk if they're getting just a kidney transplant, a heart transplant, something else? Right. All of the organ procurement organizations in the U.S. have been testing donor organs for COVID throughout the pandemic. They're not required to, but they have been doing that testing, I'm told. We haven't seen any other cases. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention analyzed uh, eight suspected cases of transmission through organ transplant and found that patients who with transplants who got COVID, that it didn't come from the transplanted organs. So we haven't really seen it. I mean, that's not to say we won't, but so far it looks like it's extremely rare. And so what's next? I mean, I'm sure they're going to put more testing in place. You mentioned that these organizations weren't required to test for it. I'm sure that will probably be a standard going forward. So what is next? Are they making any other type of recommendations as well? Well, the change mostly in the coming days will probably be for lungs. There already were recommendations that this fluid from deep in the lungs be tested, but it wasn't required. But now, knowing that COVID could be transmitted through this transplant, I'm told that people who are procuring lungs are going to do that test for sure. Well, an unfortunate situation, uh, although we did say it's very rare. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, hopefully we can make the proper adjustments and, and avoid something like this again. Janelle Alicia, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.